0: There is no time like the 2020s to start a company, to start a startup. You know, with the rise of the internet, you can learn anything at a very low cost, if not for free. You can build anything without needing to know how to code with tools like Bubble and Adalo, and you can get the word out about your products for free by using, you know, sites like Twitter, Product Hunt and Reddit. There's no time. Like the 2020s to build a company, yet one element of kind of entrepreneurship and company building that hasn't caught up with the times is venture capital. Unless you live, you know, in San Francisco or New York, chances are you may know what venture capital is, but you may not really know how it works. You may not know who the good VCs are and you may not know how they think. So with this podcast of forward thinking investors, I wanna dive into this world. I wanna help anyone in the world understand what is venture capital, who are the great venture capitalists and how do they think about their day to day with the goal to help more people understand how it works so they can go out and raise capital for themselves. And they can build a billion dollar companies just like you know Larry did at Google or Travis did at Uber or Katrina did at Stitch Fix. That can be you, but it just takes some education. And I'm using this podcast as a medium to teach everyone more about venture capital. So if you want to learn about it, you want to dive in, you want to meet some awesome investors, stick around, listen to some episodes, and I, and I hope you enjoy. All right, how's it going everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we talk to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Except for today, today we are having an investor segment with an incredible investor, Elizabeth Yin, the co-founder of Hustle Fund. Welcome to the show, how's it going?
1: Thanks, Matt. It's good, how are you?
0: I'm doing really well podcasting and podcasting away and tweeting and doing all these things that you do in a, in a 2021 world um, where, where it's like there's it's online it's offline it's all over the place um, let's uh so for people that that don't know who you are um you know let's kind of start high level who are you what's hustle fund what do you like to invest and just like kind of an overview um, if someone just hasn't heard of you before then we can go a little deeper into kind of uh, how you think about investing
1: Yeah, for sure. So I'm a former entrepreneur. I ran an advertising tech business for many years. Uh, It was essentially like an email ad business. Sold that company in 2014 and I've been investing uh, through a variety of different ways for the last, I don't know, five, six years, maybe longer. And uh, I previously ran the 500 Startups Accelerator for almost three years. We started Hustle Fund about almost four years ago, and uh, and then I've done a fair bit of angel investing as well. So entrepreneur termed investor.
0: Well... There, there's so many that you didn't mention or that I wanted to have into you, which is I remember when we first met you, you, you had around like 15,000 or 10,000 followers on Twitter and you started like doing all these like Twitter threads, spending a lot of time on Twitter. And now you're at like 40,000 or 45,000 or 50,000 um, followers. And I actually wanna start here um, uh, with the conversation. Um, you, you, uh, you invest in so many companies in the pre-seed stage, um, that I think to someone look from afar, it may not make sense why you're spending time on Twitter, why you're doing these like massive threads and just crushing it, but why Twitter? I'm curious, can you kind of talk to me about your relationship with Twitter, professional relationship with Twitter? And like, why are you doing all these threads? And like, why, why does that matter to you?
1: Yeah. Sometimes I actually worry that some of our LPs think I'm just like wasting all this time on Twitter. The funny thing is, you know, I actually never used Twitter for many, many years. I I think I hopped on there quite early, but never used it. And then I even bought a bunch of followers because I didn't have that many, (laughs) but still not that many. Right. Until like three years ago, we started tracking actually where our applicants were coming from for hustle fund. Like I very much see our VC business as akin to any other B2B startup and you have to track. And we noticed that actually over 50% of people who applied had at least a touch point with what we were saying on Twitter, which is crazy to me. It was like the number one channel that had an impact on, our, on people who wanted to apply to Hustle Fund. And so we felt like, okay, well, that means we really should double down on this. And so that's when I started tweeting more. So around that time, I think I had definitely no more than 3,000 followers, maybe it was like 2000 and most of them were purchased. <laughs> and, and so, um, but I, what I started doing was I, I just started experimenting with content and I found quickly that actually the thread format really hit. Now, not every Twitter thread has hit, but certain topics do, like anything on fundraising, generally is a big hit. And so, um, you know, I just started actually building my Twitter base that way, and that has driven applications as well. So that's why we do it. Like that's our most effective marketing channel. And in fact, my KPI for this year in 2021 is to hit 100,000 followers. I actually think I'm, I'm falling short on that goal, but I'm, I'm gonna try. <laughs>
0: Well, if you are if you're listening to this podcast, which you are because you're hearing our voices, we will drop uh, Elizabeth's handle at the end of the episode, which means you got to listen through to get the gold that she's dropping on Twitter so you can help her reach the hundred thousand. The reason I I brought that up is because you kind of mentioned it um, in your answer where you you do all these tweets, these threads to drive applications, um, which is, I think, in this world, at least maybe a world a few years ago um, was not as common, Um, you know, with VC was this just just it was lots of things. And maybe we can, we can talk more about that. But walk me through a little bit uh, of your process. Like, let's say a random founder, a great founder, um, but, you know, a random founder in another geography sees one of your tweets, they check out Hustle Fund. What, what's their journey look like? Um, kind of if you end up even deciding to invest in them, What is that like, what does that journey look like?
1: Yeah, I think one of the biggest learnings I had at 500 Startups was this notion that, you know, great talent literally can come from anywhere and can look like anybody. Um, But the way that VC is, and you know this better than anybody, Matt, is that uh, just people are very in their own networks. And so we wanted to make our process uh, very fair such that anybody could submit an application and you know, potentially get an investment. It's still gonna be hard, but we want everybody to go through the same process, whether you're like my best friend or somebody we don't know somewhere else. and And so we actually have an application form on our website. Anybody can go to it. It doesn't matter how you find it. Even when people send me warm intro referrals, I always send people to that page and people fill it out and they're filling out the same information. So everybody is on the same playing field of what they're submitting. And then we get that in our pipe drive and then we respond uh, with some email template and it's either we wanna interview you or we're not gonna be able to get involved for these reasons. And then if you get an interview, one of us in the investment team will do the interview and we'll make a decision after that interview uh, so, so typically it's within a couple of days. And once you get to that stage, it's very fast. And we'll just write the check 25 K, even if there's no lead or whatever, we will write it on a safe that we mutually agree upon with the founder.
0: And kind of going a little, a little bit ar- around your process. You, I don't know if you've actually used the word, maybe you have a pr- pre-seed. You, you, you seem to like invest in companies super early, right? Like you're not waiting for an immense amount of traction, um, I don't. Even, I don't. I don't even think you. For sometimes you look at traction at all. Kind of walk me through how, where you invest in like the, the 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 stage of a company, and also like how you decided to pick that type of company. Why not invest at in Series A, B? Why so early? And kind of how you think about kind of that category.
1: Yeah, I would say we are squarely pre-seed investors. In fact, actually seed is a bit late for us. And that sounds so silly because I know most investors are telling companies, oh, you're too early. We've actually said, oh, you're too late. And here's why. I think specifically for us, we're thinking valuation. So certainly a company could come to us with a bunch of traction, but then that means that their valuation expectations are probably higher. On the flip side, we are now seeing $5 million pre-seed rounds and you know, people have nothing, that would also not be for us, even if they have nothing. We're, we're talking valuation. And and now the natural question is like, what valuation are you talking about? And it, it does depend a lot on geography. I would say within the U.S., we've, we've tried to stay within like, call it three to six million post money-ish, plus or minus on that. And then other geographies, you know, especially emerging markets, they do tend to be uh, on the lower end of that. So that's typically where we play. Um, now, why why that stage? I think my general thesis, just uh, from startups, is you know, companies like traction to some extent is meaningless. You know, you have hundred dollars of revenue. Okay, that's great, but it it's not like a bil- anywhere near a billion dollar outcome, which is what VC's are looking for mostly. Um, or even ten thousand dollars. It's great. It shows the entrepreneur can really sell, but you're you're very far from the exit. So. So one of the things that I noticed is there actually isn't that much difference in my mind between a company that has $100 in revenue per month versus 1000 versus even 10000 because it's all pre-product market fit. You're still figuring out your customer. You're still figuring out the value proposition. You're still figuring out the channels you use to scale. It's all the same problem regardless of how much traction you have. And so to me, it's the same risk. And yet the valuations differ pretty wildly depending on whether you have $100 in revenue a month, $1,000 in revenue a month, or $10,000 in revenue a month. If you have $10,000 in revenue per month, like typically your valuation expectations are a lot higher than in the other categories. So that's why. I I think it's the same risk, but then like a lot of slightly later stage investors, certainly Series A investors, are paying up, in my opinion, on valuation, but they're still taking the same risk. Uh, Like these days, actually, Series A's are crazy. Like, you know, I think traditionally I see Series A's around, oh, call it 25 to 30 million post money on the lower end. And then it goes up. But these days, you know, you see a lot more crazy Series A valuations, like closer to 100 million post money valuation, which is is a lot for the same level of traction that, that these companies used to be. And so now all of a sudden, the entry point that you're getting in as an investor valuation wise, like. You, you make your money on the multiple between the entry point and the exit point. So if you're getting in at this higher evaluation as a series A investor, and you're taking the same level of risk as I am, that's really hard to make money on. That company has to be a mega, mega, mega winner.
0: And, you know, I think if, if a found maybe a newer founder or a good founder in another geography is listening to this, they might be like a little confused. But I think on the internet and on um, just just in general, there's a lot of advice out there saying, "Hey, like, there's more money than ever out there. Like, raise your valuations because you can. It's a founders market. Like, it's like it's your, you know, t- take what's yours or, or whatever." Um, and I mean, I I certainly have a lot of opinions on that. But from you, you're almost seeing the opposite, where it's like, no, like, 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 we we like, you know, we invest in like three to six million valuations, that I think is completely reasonable. What would you tell a founder who's just kind of confused on the valuation front, what to do? <laughs> Um, uh, specifically if they, even if a yeah, first time founder, even if they're great, but they're kind of doing this for the first time, how would you like advise in general? Cause you know, there's no, there's no, you know, perfect advice, but how should someone think about pricing their company? High, low, medium, what is high, et cetera?
1: Yeah, well, it is very confusing. Certainly as an entrepreneur, I was confused. And also what I'm saying is very different from what many investors will say. You know there are a lot of investors who are seed investors, and um, you know, obviously they have a different strategy. So I would say though, for like if I were raising money, even as a second-time founder, like what I would do is still the same as this advice for a first-time founder, which is I would use something that I call the tranche strategy. And Matt, you've heard me say this before, but essentially what you can do these days, because a lot of people are raising money on either safes or convertible notes, is you can set a small amount to raise at a certain valuation cap on either a convertible note or a safe and use that to essentially test the waters, but also create urgency for your round. So let's say that you want to raise a million dollars. Well, how do you know what to go out at? Like, should you, you know, you don't want to be putting a cap at, you know, let's call it 3 million post money and, and maybe take so much dilution on a million dollars. But on the other hand, if you price it at 10 million cap, maybe nobody's interested. So what do you do? Well, I would probably test the waters. Maybe you say, all right, we will raise, you know, call it 300K, a, a 3 million cap. And let's just see what the uptake is. And if the uptake is really easy, then you know, okay, we can probably raise the cap if the uptake is like non-existent or it was really hard and you're already pricing like at least in the U.S. relatively low, then um, maybe you need to go back to the drawing board. It's just not worthwhile to raise money right now because it's just going to be hard the whole way through. And so that's one way to kind of test like what the valuation should be. And without, you know, because i think it's just really hard to guess what the valuation is even for somebody who's a multi-time founder because you don't know what investors are interested
0: in and going off of the, the, the last point you said like what investors are interested in I, i'm curious for you um going back to your investor lens are there specific markets that hustle fund is interested in or certain types of founders like h- how do you view potential investments and you know you obviously don't give up your secret sauce but in general what are you looking for other than Hustlers, which of course, you know, is the name of the name of your firm.
1: Yeah, I'm a pretty open book, but I think the problem is it's all subjective at this stage. So I'd say number one, we we generally skew towards investing in companies that can make money right out of the gate. So that tends to skew very B2B. We don't do a lot in like consumer marketplaces, though. We do have some, um, We have done a lot in health where insurance pays and so you can make some good money that way. So things where you can monetize pretty immediately without lots and lots of users. Another firm that's bigger and has more capital might do like, you know, ad revenue strategies or whatever. We do not because we're only writing a 25K check. So that's thought number one. Like, you know, every fund has a different strategy kind of per their fund size and also their check size. But then, okay, within that B2B, let's just say for a moment, it's very broad. And there are many verticals in B2B. There's like instruction, and there's, I don't know what else, you know, there's insurance, there's a lot. So I, the way that we look at it is less about verticals and more about the specific idea at hand. And I think when it comes down to it, like business is simple to articulate, but hard to do. Like you want your costs to fit into how much money you make. That's the strategy for everybody and so we try to get a gut feeling around well how how easy and how expensive do we think it will be to acquire these customers and how much are those customers worth to you and essentially try to weigh that and if we just on a gut feeling feel like oh this is going to be too hard at scale because those two numbers are too close together that's too tight you can't make any money then we'll just pass um i think the other thing that dictates those numbers is competition or differentiation like If you're coming up with, let's say, a new CRM, like a general CRM, there are 20,000 CRMs on the market today. And so I think you know that, that just might be hard because there's a lot of competition, and so your CAC goes up because there's a lot of competition. And so these are the kinds of things that we think about, but again, there's a gut feeling. I think the other thing is founders can still make good money um, even if we are passing because you know, we, you know, we're one, we're not always right, but two, even if we're right, that it's not good for a VC to enter it, it could still be a very great business for a founder. Ultimately, VCs are middlemen or middle women. So, you know, our expectations of what a winner needs to be in order for our fund to work is very different from the expectations of what a founder needs or wants.
0: And for kind of the last, I would say like portion, I kind of want to talk about um, VC on a macro level and starting off on the perspective of you started Hustle Fund, um, I mean, you said four years ago, and, but I, you, I remember when we met like at, at a dinner like two or three years ago, You talked about like you wanted to do things differently. You set a great example, just be like a good firm that does good by all, all types of founders. And, and it's because the industry at that point ha- had a lot of problems. I'm curious for you, what would you, has the industry improved at all? Um, has it, wh- like, wh- what has happened, um, not in Hustle Fund, but in the VC since you started your firm? And, and what's your perspective there?
1: Yeah, I think when we first started, number one, there were not many pre-seed funds. It was basically like Charles Hudson had just started Precursor. I think Notation Capital had just started as well. Maybe there were a couple of others, but you could count them on one hand. Now you have the rise of the angel up, op- which is, a, you know, many of them do precede, you have more precede funds, et cetera. So I actually think that's great. It's great for founders to have more people to pitch to more options, et cetera. I think regarding, you know, some of the ickiness of BC that I absolutely hated when I was a founder, like people ghosting you or, or giving you like non-answer answers or, or, or whatever, or being rude, like in a meeting, like checking your phone all the time. Uh, I think that behavior still exists, but I also think that there are a lot of investors who don't have now who don't have that behavior. And part of it is that because there are more investors and, frankly speaking, there is more competition, everybody has to be on better behavior to win deals. Like, If a founder has a choice between this one firm where they were just on their phone the whole meeting versus another firm that even just paid attention, like, who do you think the founder is going to pick? So I think the industry is getting better, but I, I think there, are, you know, there there are still some issues.
0: <laughs> and uh, I guess one more question on on that front: is is that something that you feel like is is trending to get better? Is it just like some industries always have like you know certain issues? Do you think this will always persist? Or the new the new wash of uh, or the new kind of group of VCs, which I agree are fantastic, will that kind of like fix it up? Or just over the course of like a decade or two, like do you think that's that's the fix?
1: Oh yeah, I think it's going to get fixed, and I think it's going to get fixed faster than I originally predicted. I think initially we thought, well, we want to have a dent in the world just by being there, and and maybe our presence will help a little bit. But I could not have predicted the number of all these angel operator thing, you know, people running these side funds that would come in and and newer funds, et cetera. Um, know who also have very similar ethos in really pushing this so i think we're going to see a lot of interesting change up certainly in this next decade
0: and i have one last question and then we'll call it a day um and i it it might be hard but like i think there's a lot of people listening that like are in this boat so like they probably want to hear so like what, what would you there's a lot of people that are getting into entrepreneurship for the first time like ever right now um that are just on twitter that are seeing that money's everywhere and they think they can go out and you know raise money on like you know in three days just like everyone else what would what advice would you give of like just a total raw first-time entrepreneur dipping their toes and super ambitious but like they, they they haven't necessarily had any reps yet do, uh, do, do you, um? what would you say uh, to these people to kind of give them advice breaking into tech?
1: Yeah, I would say that actually uh, it's interesting cause like on Twitter and reading TechCrunch it just seems like, oh yeah, there's money everywhere and Silicon Valley is lined with gold. But I think the reality is actually that that does happen certainly to, you know serial entrepreneurs or notable founders or whatever for sure. But I think for most first time founders uh, fundraising is a slog period it, it is a slog even if you're if your round gets hot at the end which is possible then great but in the beginning it is always a slog i can point to so many examples in our portfolio where yeah in the end everybody wanted in and all this stuff but for many months like nobody was interested and i think that's just kind of how it goes because the industry is still very much a partly a herd mentality but i think I think the other thing also is just there's so many companies to look at and so sometimes it's hard to prioritize and people frankly speaking prioritize things that have urgency and that's just kind of what happens so I think as a first-time founder just one know that it's your round is not going to be hot until the end and for many people your round is actually still never hot um but that's okay um and then I think number two is just I, I think just um Well, I would recommend everybody read my blog on tactics. I think fundraising is like just a weird beast. It is very different from sales. Like certainly you need some storytelling and salesmanship skills, but the way you play the game is very different. And it's all about creating urgency uh, in order to be prioritized. And so what that means is you have to pack all of your investor meetings in all around the same time. So that way investors can make a decision around the same time. It means that many will say no, but if you have enough meetings, then enough will say yes, and that's really what you want. It's a numbers game packed together. And so working backwards, how do you get all those meetings packed together? If you are lucky with network or you've joined an accelerator, it can be through warm intros. Um, But if not, I think even in this day and age, you can just like find all these people on Twitter and DM them or email them. A lot of people are accepting that these days, or just respond to their threads.
0: All right, you've given so much to us in the last 30 minutes. Now it's time for us to give you something. We want to follow you on Twitter. We want to get you to 100,000. We want to follow your blog. In short, what I'm saying is, how can people connect with you online? What, what's your Twitter newsletter, hustlefunds. You know, website? How can people connect on the internet?
1: Yeah, thanks, Matt. So I am at dunkhippo33. I know it's a weird handle, but uh, you can see my Twitter threads there. Follow me. Um, I also have a blog that has a lot of articles on tactical fundraising, which might help your raise um, at elizabethyen.com. And then for Hustle Fund, we do uh, monthly webinars actually. And we're doing one next week, actually, where three founders are pitching us and we're giving them feedback. And these webinars are very tactical, uh, mostly in fundraising, but sometimes customer acquisition. And you can find out that schedule by signing up for our newsletter at hustlefund.bc.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me, Matt.